welcome to Just Plain Wrong, the podcast where three Mennonite librarians discuss depictions of Amish, Mennonites, and other plain groups in popular culture. I'm Erin, your moderator for this episode, and with me are my co-hosts, Abby and Tilly. This week, we will be chatting with Regina Shantz-Dalsfus and Tobin Miller-Shear about their anti-racism work in the Mennonite Church and their newish book, Been in the Struggle, Pursuing an Anti-Racist Spirituality. So I'm going to start by introducing Tobin. So welcome, Tobin Miller-Shear. Good to be Tobin. here. <laughs> Tobin is a history professor and director of African-American studies at the University of Montana. He also serves as director of the nonprofit consulting group, Wider Stand Consulting. But perhaps most importantly, he is my uncle and <laughs> has known me for, I guess, my whole life. Could tell very embarrassing stories. about. I have known her for her entire life. And I could come up with any number of embarrassing stories, but that's not a good place to start. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> uh, and I get the privilege of introducing Regina. Regina Shan Staltzfus currently teaches at Goshen College and chairs the Religion, Justice, and Society Department. In addition to her official duties, she is also a great supporter of the library and served as a judge for one of our annual Pi Day competitions. I did. <laughs> so, so happy to have you, Regina. Good to be here. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about yourselves before we jump into our first activity? I'm a super fan of Just Plain Wrong. Just saying. <laughs> We've been trying to figure out what the name for our fans should be. You know, how like my favorite murder is like Murderinos and everyone has these cute names. And the closest we've been able to come is Congregant. <laughs> um, that doesn't quite, okay, yeah. quite convey the enthusiasm we're hoping to provoke. Uh, super fun, though. <laughs> I have to say for the record that I, too, am a fan. Oh, and sometimes I'm listening to the podcast when I'm walking by the library, and it feels Aww. very surreal to me. <laughs> As we do with the majority of our guests, we would like to have you do the Amish title generator. Uh, so for this purposes, we will need to know your favorite dessert that is, well, they're not exclusive to the Amish. Amish, Mennonite, last digit of your phone number, first letter of name, you can choose your first name or your last name, and then your birthday month. We do want to judge you for your Amish mm. dessert choice. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's any wrong. There's it's, a wrong choice. Well, <laughs> hmm. all right. I will confess to being a very bad Mennonite because pies are not my favorite thing. Made it all the more impressive that you agreed to judge. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some pies that I do enjoy, but they're not like the ones with lots of things going on so apple pie that puts you with the amish made six hopeful christmas and engagement so you end up with the amish maids hopeful christmas engagement which makes enough sense that i feel like that could be a book sometimes these seem less plausible than others but no, I was looking the other week at like the Amish firefighters expectant widow, and that's a real <laughs> book. And so every time I think that these are like pushing it, I remember that really there are some things out there that are pretty terrible. So, 
Great, Tobin, what do you get? So my first answer is controversial and that I have sat around a table at great length debating with members of the supper club that we eat a meal with every week about whether a whoopie pie is a pie or a cookie. But of the list of pies that are there or of edible items, whoopie pies is definitely my first choice. For well, I'm going to just go with that. But note, it's controversy. And then it's number three is last digit of my phone. And we'll go with T for the first letter. And then I'm born in January. Hmm, this, could be, this could be interesting. Uh, the Amish Bishop's secret bonnet mishap. Which means, is the bishop wearing a bonnet or Ooh. has the bishop been messing with someone else's bonnet? What's like the mess intriguing. <laughs> it could be scandalous. <laughs> All right. Uh, from that, we will uh, go into our more straightforward interview questions. So we thought it would be helpful for listeners who may not have read any of your books or know you personally like we do. Um, can you give us a little bit of the Tobin and Regina origin story? How did the two of you meet and how did you begin working together and what kind of work have you been doing these last decades? You can decide who starts. <laughs> He's looking at me like, go ahead and start. So I'm going to go ahead and start. And you jump in whenever you feel like it. All right. Mm -hmm. So Sounds we good. we both were working for Mennonite Central Committee US in the mid 90s. We actually met at a conference that was in New York. I was working with Mennonite Conciliation Service and Tobin was heading up the brand new shiny anti-racism desk. Pick it up. And it wasn't even called that then. It was called the Racism Awareness Project, originally oh, that's conceived right. of a two-year close-ended project as if we'd be able to deal with all the issues in the entire Mennonite community in the space of two, two years. years. That turned out not to be true and, in <laughs> fact, was insulting. And one of our first collaborative projects was to work to make it a permanent program, which it did become. And then our sort of official work began coming out of a conference that we co-led in Chicago called Restoring Our Sight. We'd hope we get 50 Anabaptists to show up and talk about racism. We had 250 people show up mm -hmm. and then began collaborating with Crossroads Ministries to put in place something that we then called Damascus Road. The only thing I will add is we had the conference, Restoring Our Sight, we were looking for conversation partners. And so we really did hope that we got at least 50 people, but I don't think our in our original um, planning, at least my memory was, we just wanted to talk to other people who were thinking about and talking about what we were talking about. And um, the, initial, the initial idea for this conference didn't even have a program component to it. But mm -hmm. as soon as we saw, or as we began to see how many people were coming, we thought, oh, we should do a program. We should have a program. So there were workshops and speakers and time set aside at the end for brainstorming, which led to the creation of Damascus Road. 
And I once added up how many sessions we did together in the course of, it was about a period of six to seven years when we were just both doing this pretty much as our major um, outreach. And we did like 250, I think, sessions from a half day or greater in the space of that period of time. It was very, very intensive. Mm-hmm. So obviously this is this is probably a bigger question. So you can, it is a big question. So you can kind of decide how you want to approach it. Um, so from Damascus Road to today, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the Mennonite Church's perception and acceptance of um, your work and anti-racism work? generally? Well, I can jump into that one first, since Regina did the last one. I think there's a number of sort of directions at which we can answer that question. One of them being just in terms of the people who are now leading the church have all come through Damascus Road or were part of its leadership in one way or the other. At Everyone from Glenn Guyton to Iris Daly and Hartshorn or to the most recent hire for Peace and Justice Ministries, Lorraine Stutzman Omstips, all of them are colleagues and have worked with us and have been advancing that agenda beyond anything we ever did. But that's been a significant shift. And the other one that I will name is simply that the language of anti-racism isn't a foreign concept in the way it was. We wrote an article for, at that point, it was the Gospel Herald Mennonite Church um, News Magazine, in which we explain why we use that. And we had to have this whole defense for the use of that term because it was so foreign to people at the time. And this would have been mm, probably 97, 98, so some time mm-hmm. ago. And we were using it then, but it was it was a strange concept to people. It, it was a strange concept. And people, I, I remember having conversations with people about um, either, like you said, questioning why we were using the word racism at all, because it's so negative. That's kind of the point. Um, but telling, you know, saying the, the things that you hear people say when they're trying to tell you, you should really be nicer in your approach. And so the word racism, even when it's in the phrase anti-racism, right, just sounded, I guess, combative to people, and and it was a turnoff for a lot of people. And so that's a huge change, I think, both in terms of the folks that we were working with then, but just also the broader culture. There's more of a willingness in many parts to say racism and anti-racism. The other thing that I would add, too, is talking about white people as white people, like mm-hmm. as a as a white person, particularly in my experience and our experience, white Mennonites really, really, really yeah. didn't want to talk about being white. Mm-hmm. Um, they, for many of them, this was a very common conversation to have. Their primary identity was as a Mennonite and not as a white person. Hmm. That's really interesting. Need for intersectionality here, just because 
you feel like you're a theological minority or you're a minority in a nation that doesn't value pacifism doesn't mean you aren't still benefiting from white privilege. Right. doesn't mean yep. that the rest of the world doesn't view you as white mm-hmm. and that, yep. you know, by default, that you aren't white. So mm-hmm. that was a constant, a constant struggle. I think we could probably talk about that for a long time, but I'll just say there are excellent chapters devoted to that topic in your book. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Tilly. (laughs) (laughs) One chapter in your book that is less about whiteness, but is still about the way race is depicted in the world is anti-racism in popular culture. So you talk about movies and TV and we're, I read this, and when we read this, we all sort of saw it clicking into our heads in the context of Amish romance and Mennonite romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing that neither of you has any real interest in re- reading Amish romance. Have either of you ever read any? Everything I know about Amish romance, I have learned from you all. <laughs> okay. I Yeah, the sad thing is we don't actually recommend that. <laughs> um, uh, unless they really want to, and then we will give them what we think are the reasonable options. So with without having actually read any, one thing that we have discovered as we've dived into this genre is just total absence of people of color. And... Our hypothesis right now is that Amish romance novels are popular with white evangelical readers and also white evangelical writers because putting things in an Amish context means that they can just not deal with questions of racial identity. And at the same time, they get to reinforce and push the superiority of uh, rural life, uh, simple life uh, that just so happens to be all white. (laughs) And that along the way, they also, you know, reinforce and idealize this spirituality of individuality as you talk about it. Do you see this? Well, do you think that this is accurate from what you know of Amish romance? And if your experience with Amish romance isn't substantial enough, do you see that trend popping up in other genres and other parts of pop culture? I I have a couple of responses to that. I think I do think that there is a truth to that you know the placement of the settings of where these stories take place so you don't have to deal with race. I think even if it's an unconscious wanting to do that because the connection that I make with that is thinking about how many times I've heard students say, you know, and they're and they're talking out of their own experience. And it's I think it's usually early on in their college career when they haven't, when they've just moved, just recently moved from that place. And they'll say things like, well, we didn't really have issues with racism where I came from because there were not any people of color. And so I think that the the absence of people of color means the, you know, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about it when people of color are there either, but it's like this, you can build a world that doesn't have those kinds of problems in it. So I think that there really is something to that. And then the other thing that I'll say quickly, because I would love to hear what Tobin has to say on this, 
is one of the things that I like to do in a weird kind of way is suspend, suspend, is it suspending disbelief? The thing that you do when you just enter into the world of the narrative Um, and watching shows where there's a multiracial cast and race is never like race is never Mm -hmm. an, an issue or a problem. There's a show that we're watching. It's kind of soapy, Sweet Magnolias. So the storyline is really interesting, but it's the southern town. It's present day, and it's a southern town. I think they're in uh, South Carolina, and it's a small town, and it's very, very, very multiracial. And the pastor of the church that everybody goes to is Black, and it's just but no one ever talks about race. It's fascinating. And I think that that is another way of keeping that the storylines in, in that particular um, world of Sweet Magnolias. Like, they're complex, but they're not racially complex because mm-hmm. that just feels like, this is me interpreting, that just feels like it's really thorny and heavy. And so we'll deal with other social issues, but we're going to like let you see this multiracial community doing life together and never, ever, ever talking about race. Does that feel refreshing and like a good thing to have like a, a positive vision of, or do you think that that is letting people off the hook because... I go back and forth. I go back and forth with it because I, at first it bothered me. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let it go and enjoy this show because I do like it. And we watch it and, you know, we talk about all the storylines and all the things that are happening and I just have to let it go. And it's not the only show that does this, but it's just fascinating that in the 21st century in the United States of America, you can have multiracial stories and not have racism. So it's kind of a utopia, I guess. <laughs> I'm thinking about that with Bridgerton. That's um, immediately what I was thinking And of. sort of <laughs> thinking about how Bridgerton is just, the books are a big player in romance. The TV show is a big player in romance. And, you know, it occurs to me that someday we might be looking at uh, some sort of fictionalized reinterpretation of Amish stories where there are people of color. And, interesting. you know, it's it's just sort of a way of making that happen without having to find a convoluted route to get a character of color to join the cast. Um, mm-hmm. But... I don't know how much I trust that that portion of the publishing industry is going to be willing to accept that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, Well, like Regina, I find this such an intriguing and generative question to consider. And I sort of have two thoughts as well. One is I was reminded of a 2008 essay by scholar and poet um, uh, Julia Kastorf, who writes about the Amish as being whiter than white. It's this space upon which we can inscribe our hopes, our desires, our fears. 
And everything I heard you describing, Tilly, as you were framing the question is consistent with what Julia was articulating back in 2008. This is a place where we can, as white people in particular, that's the we I'm using here, sort of inscribe the best of who we want to be as a collective without ever having to name the fact that that's what we're doing, right? We can allow whiteness to remain invisible while we are in the midst of exploring this whiteopia, if you will. The other thing that I was reflecting about as well is that even though there is the assumption of the Amish realm being entirely racially homogeneous, there still are active acts of suppression going on to cut out the places where that is not true. So I've done other writing about the fresh air rural hosting programs where Mennonites and Amish, quite actively the Amish community, would and continue to bring black and brown children from the inner city into their homes and communities. And, and there's, there's really problematic issues going on about how they're conceived or, or, or conceived of when they're going out in public with their Amish hosts, sometimes adopting the dress patterns of the Amish. But at any rate, that's a, a, a place in which it is not completely homogeneous. And I am guessing you'll have to tell me that that never shows up in Amish romances. Yeah, of you're all shaking not. your heads no. We've seen, yeah, no. we tried really hard to find. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're still trying really hard to find. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's an action. It's, it's, I mean, it's a very deliberate, you know, way of framing the whiteness of this whiter than white community. Um, so I think you're onto something there that is, is worth of even more attention than we're giving it now. But I wonder if someone would take that on, would, would it even get published? I mean, would the publishers want to go there? No, I mean, I think... I think, you know, there might be a few that would take it. And I, we've seen very slight forays into addressing some issues. One of the Linda Byler books we read last season had an interracial romance and it talked about it, but it also talked about it in a historical context in kind of a vague place that was never really named and was the time was never pinned down. Um, and then the black character died at the end of the book. <laughs> and so we started off with some level of hope, like, oh, this will be an interesting exploration of, of so many dynamics that we just haven't even talked about or seen. And, and I don't know how much of that is due to the author's isolation in her perspective and the fact that part of her agreement in order to publish books is that she doesn't have an editor. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think I've seen any any of the big names, the Beverly Lewis's trying to deal with that either. So the only other, we haven't read it, but I know there's a series that has an Amish woman and the love interest is like a Latino pop star. Yeah, I, I guess I, I have grown to, um, I don't know about the publishers, but I certainly don't trust the authors in this genre to, <laughs> to do much more than <laughs> we're getting from them now. Uh, I think they've discovered what their audience is and what their audience will buy. And unless their audience pushes back and demands more, I, I don't see much changing in the genre of Amish romance. 
And I'm normally an optimist, so I feel like that's a bleak take. <laughs> and I might just follow up a little bit. I in a related thing, I this came to me when I was reading um chapter six, actually, which was responding to whiteness. And Tobin, you reflected on kind of the absence of strong cultural markers, um, kind of sacrifice to the transition of whiteness, like when different cultures were becoming white, they would also often sacrifice or get rid of these um, spiritual or cultural traditions. And and that can sometimes lead white people to, to seek out other spiritual practices to kind of fill things in to a certain extent. And um, like one of the examples you gave was um, like new age practices that kind of can kind of appropriate from native cultures into their, into their spirituality. And that was actually, it made me think about, again, this kind of connected to this question of this idea of maybe Amish, the Amish world kind of reflects this idea of stronger spiritual practice, stronger cultural connections. And maybe that's also part of why it attracts um white people or white evangelicals or readership because it represents this idea of having a stronger spiritual practice. So that was um, another idea I had after, after reading more of your books or another more, more chapters of your book. Yeah. I think the principle of authenticity is really intriguing to consider in this context. And there's a way in which the Amish get framed as being authentic over against sort of a generic whiteness and then you have that sort of attractive process. I, I, we use the, uh, the language of vacuum to try to fill that vacuum up. And I, I think that's some of the base underpinnings of the commercialization of the whole Amish under- enterprise that you see places like Lancaster County or Holmes County in Ohio. I, I think some of that's going on. There's a bit of nostalgia. I mean, all of that's present. You all, are the, you are the experts, you know the stuff. But I think <laughs> the spiritual sort of line you're connecting there is absolutely on point. I also just want to point out that in our notes, uh, our behind the scene notes on the chapter on pop culture, Tobin, it, it actually says in here, why didn't Tobin's love of Lord of the Rings transfer to Aaron is a question that might oh, And also <laughs> perhaps more up for debate is who loves Lord of the Rings more, Abby or Tobin? Like which one of you has actually watched it the most? <laughs> How many times I, did you watch it, Abby? Oh, well, I did see each film three times in the theater. And then um, I've watched them countless times since. I dressed up for the midnight showing uh, for two of the productions while I was in college, including going to the midnight showing. Um, is probably a confession of my um, academic I don't know, whatever, because I went during exam week to a midnight showing of Lord of the Rings and I kind of paid the price. Um, (laughs) And I've watched, I mean, I've read the books a lot. Um, I've watched all the special features of each extended version of the film multiple times. So it's been a while. You win, hands down. (laughs) I bow before you. I'm just like, oh, sounds terrible. I, I will say I don't come close to Stephen Colbert. If you if you are familiar with him and his obsession with Lord of the Rings, um, I would never I would never attempt to um, challenge him. He has a like he's the type who actually has read Silmarillion multiple times and actually remembers uh, the names and understands holy the mythology. Moly. That's I'm not at that level. I want to make it clear. I, I really I, liked the movies. That's it's a little different. <laughs> I read the Silmarillion once. But it was a slog. I mean, anyhow, enough of that. 
Yeah. I don't yeah. even know what you're talking about. It's some sort of prequel. <laughs> yeah, it's basically yeah, a prequel yeah. where yeah. Tolkien dumped all of like the extraneous lore that didn't make it into oh. books or that he developed later. And a lot of it, it kind of reads like a fantasy version of like Leviticus or something. <laughs> there's a lot of like dynasties and names and i didn't get very far in before i was like nope (laughs) a little less of the like obscure rules but very much the myth (laughs) like the genealogies and the mythology definitely very much so but (laughs) just so you know we all we all chuckled when we saw that in the book like oh for as much as we talk about lord of the rings on this podcast (laughs) Tobin's made a clear connection for us. Um, So the next question, this is one, um, I think this is one of your last chapters, I can't remember, but in the chapter on institutional transformation, you talk about leaving no one behind uh, in the work of anti-racism. So I'm going to quote your own book back to you. Quote, the work of white people is not to demonstrate distance or separation from other white folk. And I won't lie, when I read these Amish romances, I very much want to separate myself from the authors and traditional readership of these books. Uh, so I felt a little uh, convicted reading reading that sentence. So I guess, uh, what, ad- what advice do you have for us? Uh, like, how do we potentially invite this genre along rather than trying to separate ourselves from it? Is there a way? <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is a tough question. I mean, I think on one hand, for us and the work we do, and I think that that section you're quoting is really something where I, my voice is speaking to other white people mm-hmm. out of a phenomenon that we've that we've we've traced over time, uh, particularly for white folks who are newer to the work of anti-racism, or to use sort of more contemporary language, who have suddenly become woke, that there's this sense of proving your credentials as a white anti-racist by separating yourself from other white people by being hypercritical and that's not me, that's them, that kind of thing. So that's the space into which we're trying to speak there. I think as you apply it to your engagement with this subgenre, this very particular set of in, you know, engaging with the idea of the Amish, I mean, I, I think the very work you're doing is what we're talking about in the sense that you are inviting the authors with whom you engage to be reflective about their work. And I think I would just suggest that I think a very fecund, rich uh, vein of inquiry is to continue to ask the question for them to surface their engagement with the white world that they're writing about that we don't let whiteness be invisible in the genre, mm-hmm. that we make that, be, bring that to the surface and invite reflection on it. I mean, we as white people are very uncomfortable talking about our identity, as Regina was referencing earlier. And I think the more you can invite either in your reflections on the texts or the authors that you bring in to discuss the texts, whenever that happens, ask them to think about that. What, what, in what ways are they engaging it? Um, that that would be my main response. Yeah, I would only add that one of the dynamics that seems to be happening with that kind of, you know, when people do that separation and sort of self-congratulatory, I'm not like that. It 
it feeds into that um, that thing where to be, I'm messing up my words here. What I'm trying to say is the idea that to be called a racist, because that's what people often hear. And of course, nobody wants to be called a racist, right? But then the doubling down to prove one's not racistness feeds into the dynamic that being called a racist is worse than racism. And so it it moves away from the initial problem that we're actually trying to address or that we want to actually um, address. But now there's this whole thing that needs to be dealt with that I think the expectation and the thing that we have experienced in workshops, especially back in the day, are people who either want to be congratulated for not being one of the bad ones or want to want absolution <laughs> from from people of color uh, to say, well, you're not you're not that bad or no, you're different than and, and it's just that gets in the way of the work. That gets in the way of the work. And that's work that needs to be done. I think that that, that process, that grieving, that anger, all of that stuff, I'm, I don't say that that is not real or it doesn't need to be dealt with, but it has, a, I think that that's work. Um, one of the reasons that we, that we like to use caucusing as, as a process in our work together. I think that that is something that is best done, white people's work that is best done among white people and not, not looking to people of color to absorb that or lead it or process it or do anything with it other than say, yeah, we want to do this work with you, but when you, but there's work that you do on your own and there's work that we do on our own. And when we come together, if we've done that work well, we can probably do our work together well. Regina, I'm recalling the conversation we had at dinner last Wednesday in South Bend when we were, we actually had an opportunity to be in physically in the same space to talk about our book at St. Mary's College. And one of our conversation partners over dinner that evening was introducing the idea of this um, need that white people often feel for black absolution as the black pat. Um, Dr. It's Dr. Regina Hill was her name, correct? She was mm -hmm. quoting someone else, but she delivered, she gave us that, which I think is just very powerful image that that's something we as white folks often yearn for, particularly those of us who are trying to work at this, but it can become twisted and uh, ends up absolving us of taking responsibility for our mm -hmm. own work. So again, I appreciate the question you've given to us because I think that's a sign of you stepping into the space of wanting to be responsible for your own work without needing that black pat on the head. Mm -hmm. One thing I've thought about sometimes with the, in the context of this is wondering sometimes what it would be like if an author of one of the books that we read listened to our podcast. And that goes through my head sometimes. And, you know, I want us to be, you know, astute and critical and having an eye for this. And we're also, you know, we often have approached these things with a sense of humor as well. But I think in my head, one thing I think about is that I wouldn't want that author to feel alienated. Like, I, you know, and when we're pointing out critiques, I would want us to like, 
I hope in some ways it feels like we're coming from a place that we're not trying to scold necessarily in the sense of we are somehow better than, than, you know, everyone involved with this genre because we're critiquing it as opposed to we are also participants in this popular culture. We are participants in this. And, and, you know, I'm not sure if that necessarily always comes across. And I think it's also, you know, because we've also talked about our struggles sometimes with getting a little burnt out on the genre at various times, but hoping that in some ways, yeah, it would maybe be something where we could have a conversation as opposed to necessarily Mm -hmm. completely Mm -hmm. isolate or, or push back, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think sometimes about the difference between critique and criticism, I guess, and in that the way I first learned to really handle any critique was in the context of art classes. My family is very much um, visually art oriented. And there's an art to telling people firmly, like, you need to work on your perspective, or you need to not use those colors together, or you need to do this. Here's what you can do here's here's why this doesn't feel right to you. Here's what you can do to make it better. And the process of soliciting feedback and accepting feedback and giving feedback doesn't always feel even, but it's a standard process, at least in the art world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something that should be brought into other areas of life and taught Mm -hmm. to people because so often we take critique as a personal attack. And, but then, you know, at the same time, I think we're critiquing these books. I don't think we're being out of line, but we are putting these things out there in public. You know, anyone can Mm -hmm. listen. It's, this isn't a private nudge that's been solicited. This is, I won't quite call it calling people out, but Mm -hmm. I could understand that it could engender a bad reaction on the part of the people who are writing them. And that's not effective (laughs) with Mm -hmm. what we would like to have happen, which is better books. (laughs) (laughs) Things I wonder. So for our last uh, question, before we have, uh, a short fun, hopefully fun activity at the very end. Um, In your book, you have a lot to say about the value of stories. Early on, you say spiritualities are about stories if they are about anything at all. And then in the chapter on pop culture, you say the way we tell stories, no matter how fanciful or far out, help create the values that determine whose lives are cherished, whose cultural cultural traditions are maintained and whose voices we listen to and whose we ignore. So knowing you're both uh, prolific writers and excellent storytellers, we have to ask, have you considered making your next collaboration a work of fiction? Perhaps uh, an Amish romance novel? Um... (laughs) This is so funny because just a week ago, we weren't planning to write a book of fiction, but we were imagining what it would be like to write. And I've already forgotten the title, but it had murder in it. It did. (laughs) Yeah, a murder mystery. This was a a suggestion that was given to us by a Franciscan monk. 
as he was driving us back to our car and hotel after dinner. It was just this wonderful juxtaposition. And he was positing that we should write about it, about the campuses of Holy Cross, St. Mary's and Notre Dame, about which I know nothing, but he knows a lot. And so maybe he was wanting to write a book that us to write a book that he would love. But uh, I like murder mysteries. I'm not sure I could write one. But with Regina, maybe I could. We had a really fun mysteries. time writing. Yeah, murder <laughs> mysteries are great. Say, and there's there's a lot of precedent lately for people whose day job is not writing fiction. You know, like both of the Clintons have co-wrote murder mysteries with with other <laughs> authors, and then you know Stacey Abrams was mm-hmm. doing that like while in law school, um, mm-hmm. and it's still writing. You know, so there's something. I think there's something to be said for like encouraging. Uh, fictional uh, explorations of things there really is i think so <laughs> perhaps you could write us the rom- the amish romance that we are longing for <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to you on that <laughs> you know one thing the amish subgenre does well is merge with like 12 other genres at once oh. it could be <laughs> a sci-fi That's murder great. mystery amish romance I don't know, coming of age graphic novel if you wanted it to be. (laughs) (laughs) We could probably find one of those. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we do have another activity to end with. I don't know if this this activity was introduced in our interview with Joe Springer. So if you're not, uh, if you haven't listened to all of the recent episodes, you may not have yet heard about our new game that we've invented called Balderdutch where we will read you three books, uh, three synopses of books. Two are actually real. They actually exist. And one we have made up. And we're also doing a little bit of the wait, wait, don't tell me thing here. So since you two are experts on race, we are presenting three Amish fiction plot lines related to racing, as in cars and track and field (laughs) racing. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) Um, So uh, we will each read one. And again, two of these are real. And your job is to suss out which one of us is reading the fake one. So Abby will be reading the first one. So uh, this book is titled Amish Boy Saved by the Wolves. Atlee Miller can't stand the confines of his small Amish town. So when his rumspringa starts, he hitchhikes all the way to Alaska He finds work as a logger, but one night gets lost on his way home. Fortunately, a friendly pack of wolves takes him in and he bonds with them. Then he learns about the Iditarod and enters his pack in the race. Can Atlee and his wolves win the race? Will Atlee's parents convince him to return home? And does Bertha still love him? You can find out if you read Amish Boy Saved by the Wolves. Right. Mine is called Return to Intercourse, an Amish Romance. Amish teen Sarah Yoder is enjoying her rumspring of romance with aspiring NASCAR driver Tanner Tanner Chase when she's called back to her hometown of Intercourse to help her ailing father and struggling family after a tragic barn raising accident. While she loves her family and eagerly pitches him back home, Sarah also misses the speed and abandon of NASCAR life with Tanner. But when a strange new farmhand comes to help in the family stables, Sarah realizes there may be satisfaction in a slower, less reckless path. Mine is titled The Long Run. When an English track coach scouts David Byler, a natural-born Amish runner, to run for a local high school team, David must make a choice. 
Will he return to school and compete in track and risk being tempted away from the Amish way of life? Or will he give up a bright future as a track star and stay with the beautiful Salome? Those only one of these is true and two aren't, or is it the other way around? No, only one of these is fake. Two of these are real books that you could read if you wanted to. Oh, two of them are real. Two, two of them, them are, real. are real. Holy yes. moly. <laughs> so I think the third one is real. Yeah, that's what I think too, that that's a real one. That leaves what was you the first me. one again? Just the title? So, Amish Boy Saved by the Wolves. <laughs> I mean, the, the title of the second one is what's just, I, I just burst out laughing as soon as I hear it return to intercourse. Oh, that can't be true. Is that, what do you think, Regina? I don't, I don't know. I, I think the wolves one is just no, no, we're not living with wolves. <laughs> uh, you'd like there to be a line somewhere. So I think Regina, two and three are the real ones. Open. Regina is usually right. I I am gonna go with that. The the I just can't believe that that's the title. I mean, I've told jokes about the town of intercourse before, but that would end up in a title. <laughs> I'm gonna. I I, I was, I'll, I'll say the same thing. That uh, return to intercourse and the long run are the true ones. Amish boy saved by the wolves is not. You are correct. We made up and had a lot of fun doing so. The plot to Amish Boy Saved by the Wolves. Um, and I believe, so Return to Intercourse and Amish Romance is a real book, but I believe it was written as a joke. Is that, am I remembering that right, written Tilly? as, okay. that's the one that was written by, there's a podcast where the co-hosts review a, uh, like a self-help or an instructional book for every episode. And there was one book called like how to write a novel and make money self-publishing. And the, <laughs> and so they, they followed the instructions in the book and they wrote return to intercourse. Um, I think tongue in cheek, knowing that it was ridiculous, um, but they still wrote it and it is still published. <laughs> um, Get out here. So, so funny. <laughs> so that I think is why they went for the title that was uh, uh that yeah. other authors may have avoided. Well, that is all we had for for our interview. Did you have any final thoughts you wanted to share or anything to say? No, thanks thank for the conversation. Was it was very fun. Yes, it was it was great fun to have you have you both. And thank you for for taking the time to um spend this hour with us. Uh, for our listeners, you can purchase uh, Regina and Tobin's book, Been in the Struggle, wherever you get your books. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with our guests, Regina Shamstalspoos and Tobin Miller-Shear. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our conversation with Regina and Tobin or any of our other episodes. Next week, we will be discussing comic books with Mennonite references with special guest Matthew Murray from the Book Club for Masochists podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at PlainWrongPod or email us at PlainWrongPod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at PlainWrongPod.com to learn more about our podcast and to purchase t-shirts, mugs, magnets, and other merch. We always appreciate when people leave reviews and subscribe as that is how other people learn this podcast exists. Thanks for tuning in.